0: Well, you heard the book of Obadiah earlier, and if you've never heard it before, then it perhaps sounded a little strange, or uh, I don't know what, how you might be perceiving it as you listen, because it would be totally out of context for anything, any place you have to put it. Here's what we need to do this morning, and why I wanted to make sure we read that earlier. Uh, we need to grasp a little bit of the backstory behind this book. And there's actually just the tiniest bit of geography and a little bit of history that we need. And so Genesis chapter 25 introduces the backstory for understanding the book of Obadiah that we read and where our text comes from today. This you will understand most likely and remember. Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 19, we read this, this is the genealogy of Isaac. Abraham's son. So we're going way back, people. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You know the back story now behind Obadiah that it goes back to Jacob and Esau centuries before when Obadiah is prophesying in their midst and as you have followed if you were to follow that story along you would know immediately after this we have that account where Esau comes in from the field and he sees his brother Jacob who has prepared some food a red stew and Esau says man I'm just really famished give me some of that red stuff. And Jacob says, I'll trade you for it for your birthright. He's like, yeah, I'm about to die here anyways. So, sure, just give me some of that stew. You can have the birthright. And that account ends, thus Esau despised his birthright. He didn't think perhaps as highly or value things as he should have. You get to chapter 27. And in chapter 27... We have the situation, a well-known account, where Jacob ultimately steals Esau's blessing. Now, here's how the story goes down. We do not have time to go verse by verse with that. So, I just want to refresh you of the story. Came to a point, Isaac is getting old now. He's getting old, he can't see as well, his hands aren't going to feel things as well. And he decides it's time to bless his son Esau. So, he says, bring me in some game from the field... Prepare it for me, and after I eat, I would like to bless you. So Esau's excited to receive the blessing from his father, but the mom realizes what's happening here, and because she prefers Jacob, she says, here's what we've got to do. We've got to prepare some food real fast. We've got to get it prepared. I'm going to send you, and you're going to claim to be Esau, and your father's going to bless you instead of Esau. He's like, well, hang on a second, Mom. That's all well and good, except Esau is hairy, And he's a man of the outdoors and my father is going to recognize this. And he's going to know something is up. So they actually put on a little Halloween costume on him and uh, get some get some type of leathery, hairy skins that they have, so that when his dad says, "You know, your voice is Jacob's, but you sound like, but you you know, you feel like Esau," and then he brings him close, he smells him. Well, he can smell the animal, he can smell the outdoors, uh, the the gameness of that, and he goes, he just says, "Okay, well, I'm going to give the blessing to my son uh, to my son Esau, who is really Jacob." So he gives the blessing to Jacob intended for Esau. You can only imagine he'd been thinking about this for some time because he had requested for Esau to do what what was happening. And he said, now it's time for this. No sooner does this get done than Esau, the real Esau, comes in and he's ready to feed his father and to get the blessing. And his father's like, what do you mean? I just gave you the blessing. And he realizes what had taken place they realize that Jacob had just now taken the blessing from Esau. And he's like, Father, isn't there a blessing for me? And he's like, I gave it to your brother. Gives him a different blessing, but it's not what was intended for Esau. And so that situation uh, then kind of puts this rift between Jacob and Esau, And we read in verse 41 of Genesis 27, So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. He says, My dad's about to die. He's getting old. Uh, When that's all been taken care of, I'm going to take my brother out. Jacob is aware of what's planned against him. So Jacob flees. For 20 years, he's gone. That gives us the story of him working for his father-in-law, Laban. It's all backstory, father-in-law, Laban. And uh, he gets the wives, Rachel and Leah, and their handmaids, and all of this stuff is going on, and he actually winds up with a lot of descendants out of that, as well as a good deal of livestock. But it's about 20 years later, it's time to go back. As he goes back, he knows that... (laughs) Esau was pretty angry when he left, and so he better figure out a way to protect uh, what's going on here. So he has all these gifts lined up for their reunion, that is, to happen. And Esau actually asks him when he comes, what's all this stuff that you have going on? He said, it's all for you, and I want you to have it, I want you to be blessed. And Esau, he says, I got plenty, I don't need this. God's blessed me also. And he recognizes some degree of God's hand upon his life. And he says, I don't need this. But Jacob says, please take it. This is for you. So now they're living there together for a time and God continues to build each of them. Remember, it was told to their mom that two nations will come from you. And now they're running out of space. So Esau takes his clan and he moves into a place called Edom. And here's how you can picture this, okay? Okay. We're all familiar with, you got the Sea of Galilee. That's if you've looked at any Bible maps, you got the little Sea of Galilee up here in the Middle East, and then down here is the Jordan River, where they crossed over in order to get to the Promised Land, and then you got the bigger sea, which is the Dead Sea. Now, from the, the, where you're looking, if you kind of, the, the nation of Israel went down like this, at a, down like this, and then up like this at an angle, right off of that angle to the east is where Edom was located. And the thing that set them apart in Edom is as they settled there and they began to uh, make themselves uh, at home in that land. They settled a land that had very high mountains. And so it set itself up for good military defense to have such high mountains. And Genesis Genesis 36, 8 tells us that Esau is Edom. So when you think in terms, you hear about Edom, you're thinking about the descendants of Esau and the fact that they live south and east of the Dead Sea. So there's that account. Now, a number of centuries happen. It's got to be at least four centuries because we know that um, it was, uh, Israel wound up in Egypt for 400 years. That whole account took 400 years, right? We get to Numbers chapter 20. So during this time, you had Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. They split off. And then after Jacob, you have the story of Joseph, right? Joseph gets him down into Egypt. You jump over in the book of Exodus. We're looking a couple centuries later, they become a great nation. They're going to come out of Egypt, led by Moses. So God leads them out of Egypt, led by Moses. They're trying to get back to the promised land. Now, one of the, one of the routes that would have made perfect sense for them, ultimately, after a time of wilderness wanderings and all that other stuff, um, what, have, what would have made perfect sense is for them to come right up from the south, right through Edom. This brother from way back centuries before, this blood brother, they, should have, they could have come right up through there. There's a, there's a road that went through there, a trade route known as the King's Highway. It runs from north to south. It would have carried them straight on up. They asked for permission to come up through Edom in Numbers chapter 20. And as they asked permission to just come up, they say, We won't take anything if we utilize any water, if we utilize any food. We will pay for all of it. We just want access to come up where it makes sense to travel. Their brothers, the Edomites, said, No, we're not going to let you do that. And forced them to go a more circuitous, more dangerous route and just afflicted them in that way. So with that, now they've lived in tension for a number of centuries with uh, this thing of uh, yeah, we are we're not letting you come in. And actually, it's an interesting fact about the people of Edom is within the Old Testament and among the prophets, the nation that frequency-wise is most vilified is are the Edomites for how they treated the Israelites. And in Obadiah chapter. or or verse 3, it's only one chapter, verse 3, we came to our, I'd like to just bring us to our um, our memory verse. God speaking this word of judgment upon the people of Edom, he says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. Verse 3, here's our memory verse. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the cliffs of the rock, high places, very easy to defend, Whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart. Who, shall, who will bring me down to the ground. Though you ascend as high as the eagle. And though you sit, uh, set your nest among the stars. From there. I will bring you down. Says the Lord. So he calls them out on this question of their pride. That has deceived them. It is so infected their thinking. So. I'm referring to it, for this message as because it deceives, I'm referring to it as the pride that blinds. So I've called this message, Cursed Be, the Pride That Blinds. And I'd like us just to, as we look at what was said to uh, the people of Edom, I'd like us to maybe just allow it to speak to our own lives, say, is there something here we might want to consider? So here's what I'm getting at. Just as the people of Edom, you realize, of course, we're no different than the people of the Old Testament, right? You got that? Have have we made that clear, right? In the way we're put together, in the way we respond, the humanity that we have, we're just as fallen, just as broken, just as sinful, just as darkened in our thinking, in absolutely just as much need of redemption as the people of the Old Testament. We don't look back at them and say, boy, they were really bad, but we're enlightened now. No, sorry, (laughs) Nobody comes into this world any more naturally enlightened uh, than anybody else. We all have darkened minds, and we need God to redeem us and to enlighten us. All right. So, because of that, I just thought maybe it would be worth our attention to just consider what was happening with the Edomites. Is it possible, well, maybe that would say something to us. So here's what I'd like to suggest. Talking about this pride that blinds, we might, personally, we might be afflicted with the pride that blinds if we have. And there's many other things we could go to. Time limits us. One, sustained anger. Now, Ezekiel offers us just a little bit more backstory here. And this is the only place where I want to come back out of Obadiah. I'll do it with Ezekiel twice. In Ezekiel chapter 35, where Ezekiel is one of those other prophets who vilifies Edom, verse 5 says, because you have had an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity when their uh, iniquity came to an end therefore as I live says the Lord God I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you since you have not hated blood therefore blood shall pursue you at the very heart Ezekiel says, of why they turned on their brothers. That's how we had to read about Jacob and Esau. These are their blood brothers, ultimately. And they're held accountable for how they turned on their brothers. It says, because you have had an ancient hatred. We're talking centuries past, since the whole incident with Jacob and Esau. Even more centuries later that they wouldn't let him pass through Edom. So you can see this hatred is there. It's brooding. It's breeding. And now to the point when during their day, in the more recent days, when God is bringing judgment on Jerusalem. And how does he do it? He does it with other nations. But Edom piles on. Edom says, you know, yeah, this is our chance. And uh, we're happy. So here's the question, friend. Because sustained anger... That's what it says here, because you have had an ancient hatred or an everlasting hatred. I just wonder whether it's worth us just asking this question. If I've got pride that blinds, is it possible? I do if I carry a sustained anger, envy, bitterness, jealousy towards someone, others. Someone out there that it just it just festers in my spirit that I have a sustained anger. I knew a guy back when we were living in Dallas before we moved up to Lake Bronson for our first ministry. I worked with him in a group called a Design Resource Group, and we installed furniture that designers designed, and then we were the laborers who put it together. We actually put in 40 some floors of at the time brand new building that American Airlines was uh, making or just uh, outside of the Dallas Fort Worth airport and we installed all of that furniture. And a guy by the name of Sebastian Salomone was on that crew and he was just a character, no other way to describe Sebastian. And he described something that happened while we're on that site that uh, he'd come, he was originally from Boston, and he came across someone who was also from Boston. And he told me, about. he said, hey, I just met somebody else from Boston. Now, I'm not from Boston, so I don't understand the dynamics. But he said, in, in Boston, there's, the, this, there's this part of Boston and there's that part of Boston, and this part of Boston doesn't get along with that part of Boston. So he said, we're talking, we're having a great time about being from Boston. So I asked him, well, where are you from? And he was from this part of Boston. The guy asked me, where am I from? And, and Sebastian was from that part of Boston. And he said, as soon as he said where he was from, the guy just went cold on him. And then he made this statement. He said he couldn't leave the hate back in Boston. Does it matter? We're down here in Dallas, Fort Worth. Can you leave the hate behind at some point? Just that sustained anger, sustained bitterness, hatred. We're susceptible to it, friends. Are we not? So is it possible? I don't know. God will speak to us. Is it possible that we're afflicted with a pride that blinds because we have a sustained anger and we're still holding on to something that uh, we feel like a long time ago, This I was hurt by this. And God may be trying to say, hey, I'd like to heal you from that if you'll let me Sneak in there and minister to you. That's just one thing. We might have an aff- uh, be afflicted with pride that blinds if we have a defensive posture. Now, I, have, I realize I'm doing something here that those of you who are just very, very serious Bible students, you're going to say, you should not have gone about it that way. I get it, okay? Cut me a little bit of slack on this one. All right. He says in verse 3, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, uh, who shall bring me down to the ground? And as we've read twice now, God says, I will. I'm taking you down because of that pride. And that pride allowed them to, up in those mountains, up in those high places, Right? that's where it's easily to defend any stronghold, isn't it? Isn't that where they would build their fortresses? Isn't that where they would always build on the high ground? You don't build down in a valley so people can be on the high ground around you and start lobbing things into your defense system. You build on the high ground, what makes it much harder for anybody to come break that down. They had built so high. Some of these things, uh, they tell us that geographically, they're like 5,000 feet high peaks. And they're up in the caves and there's just all sorts of places all sorts of places for them, not, for them to hide. They're like, hey, nobody can get us here. Think of Afghanistan. How long did it take Russia before they decided we can't defeat Afghanistan? Here they are, what, medieval in terms of their thinking, in terms of their weaponry, and however they go about things. And a nation that has nuclear arms can't dismiss them from Afghanistan. Now, we've gone in there. We're having the same struggle. Why Why can't we get them out? Mountains, the hills, becomes just totally defensible, just a real good stronghold. Now, God can defend against. God can take them down. He says he will. In fact, when he takes him down, he says there will be nothing left of you. And there is no, there are no descendants of Esau or Edom, or the Edomites that uh, that we can point to today, because it's wiped them out of that, out of that place. So, uh, so this is their defense. So here, here's my point. Just this: we might be afflicted with pride that blinds if we have a defensive posture. We have so protected ourselves from ever anybody ever hurting us anybody ever getting near to us anybody ever being able to anger us again that well we, defenses are up all over the place it's like nobody's getting in here nobody's coming close why because i'm not going to get hurt again because i'm not going to let that happen again that could be that it's coming out of a pride that where the anger has been sustained just a thought Just a thought, something for us to consider. Those of you who are closer to me in age will remember um, there was a song, uh, Simon and Garfunkel had the song out, I Am a Rock. You recall that? And in the context of that song, they sing of a guy who's protected himself. He is not going to let anyone hurt him. And he says, I am sealed in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. We can do that, friends. We can wall ourselves off in such a way. Be so defensive in our posture. It's like, nobody's going to hurt me again. And I just wonder if it's possible God would say, man, I'd so love to bring healing to your life. I'd so love to help you, you know, unravel that and... uh, not live in this lonely, defensive place any longer. Third thought. We might be afflicted with pride that blinds if we have gloating speech. I want to pick it up at verse 12, if you would, because this is within that segment of this book where he's saying why he's going to wipe them out. He says, But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother. In the day of his, on the, yeah, on the day of your brother, in the day of his calamity, or of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. See, they watched. God was bringing judgment upon Jerusalem. They needed it. We read about that in other places in the Bible. But when it happened, rather than saying, These are our brothers, and we're concerned for them. We will pray for them. We need to ask God to be, uh, uh, be patient with them. However it is, they treated them as their enemies. They got in on the game. They went ahead and joined in on bringing destruction to Jerusalem. And God says, these are your brothers that you did this to. And you should not have spoken proudly in the day of their distress. Yeah, you know, isn't it easy isn't it easy, easy when there's somebody who just gets under our skin, we just really don't like them? And maybe it's for personal reasons that when something goes amiss for them, we're like, yeah, yeah, like that, that's good. By time you got your comeuppance. You see, that's what they're thinking about their brothers. And God's calling them out, saying you should not have gloated over them These are your people ultimately and I am taking you to task for that. I'm going to wipe you out as a nation. And is it possible, friends, is it possible that there are places in our lives where we recognize, yeah, I do tend to get pretty excited for the fact that this person got hurt or this didn't go well for them or is it possible that we celebrate that? And if we do, what does it say about us? That's the question. What does it say about us when I delight in somebody else's misfortunes? So those are just thoughts with which we examine ourselves. We might be afflicted with the pride that blinds if we have, one, sustained anger, two, a defensive posture, don't get near me, or three, gloating speech. I'm sure glad when something bad happens to you. But here's one more thought about this whole blinding pride. Our pride that blinds may ultimately be Directed to God, even if we don't admit it. So if we come back to Ezekiel now, as we come back to Ezekiel, I want us to notice something. Ezekiel back to 35. Now we were in verse 5 and 6 before. We're going to pick up verse 10. Because you have said, speaking to Edom again, these two nations in these two countries shall be mine, meaning northern and southern uh, Israel during a time of a divided kingdom, we will possess them, although the Lord God was there. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to your anger and according to the the envy which you showed in your hatred against them, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you. But here's a thought that I think that We might want to consider, you know, Esau, recall, first, remember, Esau first rejected the work of God in his own life. He despised his birthright. He didn't care for the things that matter. Now later, centuries later, through his descendants, Edom, this nation also despises what God is doing because God's point here through Ezekiel is, I'm at work in Jerusalem, That is the place where I have put my heart. That is where my love is. That is my capital. That is the place. I discipline them now, but I'm going to raise them up again because they have a special place to me and you act like it doesn't matter. Remember how David would not touch the Lord's anointed? Recall that? He would not touch the Lord's anointed because he knew God was at work in Saul's life somehow. He couldn't understand it all. But he refused to touch David or Saul and bring affliction to him. When there were times you might very well justify it. He's like, Nope, not going there. And God is saying Jerusalem, in effect, is his anointed, and you have treated Jerusalem as if it doesn't matter that God is there. What is interesting about this book, friends, just an interesting observation. There is no criticism for idolatry. Or injustice. If you will recall the book of Amos. That was the thing Amos was taking them to task for. Was idolatry. And injustice. To the poor. This has nothing to do with that. This has everything to do. With they. Afflicted their brothers. Even to the degree that when they knew. God is present at work in Jerusalem. They don't care. And they're going to bring. The, the affliction. Which causes us to ask this last searching question do we perhaps get a little bit upset with God when we see that he has somehow brought blessing upon someone else how, do, how well do we take it when someone else's life goes good maybe somebody for whom we are just a little bit jealous a little bit envious already is it, kind of, is it kind of something there where it's like, you know, I'm not sure God's treating me very fairly here. He's not being very just with me. Why do they get all the breaks? See, this happens with preachers, right? Happens with preachers. It, it, we're as susceptible to it as anything else. You put me into, a, like right, right now, you put me into a place like West Fargo, I can bet you churches are exploding in West Fargo. You know why? Because West Fargo was exploding. That's why. And when my son was in college at Moorhead, at the time... South of Fargo was exploding. And that's when he started attending Bethel. And he looked at Bethel. Wow, it's incredible. God's doing such amazing things here. These must be really amazing and incredible people that God's doing this. And then you realize it's also happening with the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the Episcopalian church. They all have these great facilities. Why? Because they're in a place that population-wise is just exploding. You want to start a church that's going to grow? Find out where the population is exploding and start there. But what do you do when God calls you to Northwest Minnesota and you're in a place where the population is actually tends to fall away? And you see that. You don't think there's a, maybe a preacher here or there finds it hard to deal with because we're seeking to be faithful too? We do. We absolutely do in our humanity. And we raise the questions. Why them, Lord, and not us? Why does that guy get to be, you know, uh, ministering in a church of 1,000 and becomes 2,000 and 3,000? Is he really any more faithful? Does he know any more? No, God's called him to minister at that place at that time. So I just want you to know, I'm throwing that out there so you know it's something I struggle with and have had to figure out where to put it in the course of time. Where do you go with this thing? See, I wouldn't trade places with any of them though because I get to minister alongside of you and I wouldn't trade it for the world. I don't care about those kind of numbers because I get to walk alongside of you people and you are such a blessing to me and to my wife and so that's just a wonderful thing. But we're all susceptible to it. That's why I make it personal. So here's one last thought as to whether or not we maybe are afflicted with pride that lines to ask these questions to see if it stirs anything where maybe the Spirit of God would speak to us. What do we do with, when, with verses of Scripture that say we're to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us? That means these same people who have afflicted us, right? Ow. Ouch. Maybe I'd like to maybe I'd like to develop a little of my own everlasting anger, my own ancient hatred, rather than really bring forgiveness. Is this what you're asking, God? I think that's what's asking. How about things that we're to live as much as possible peaceably with all men? Yeah, but some people you don't understand, Lord. They're just an irritation, right? They're, they are. They are just an irritation. What about when Jesus says to take the plank out of your own eye before you worry about? dealing with the other person's problem and these things that come to—I'm just, I'm just throwing them out there friends I'm just throwing them out there but can I can I say what I'm really frightened to say and then Dave this morning he's on this thing yeah he's so bold Lord he's so bold and I'm like if you knew how my knees are knocking you wouldn't t- say that but I gotta go there and I don't know who this who this who this speaks to? So please understand that I'm not. I do not come up here and speak to. I'll speak to this person this morning. I'll speak to them this morning. In fact, if if I'm aware of somebody that it relates to, I'm leery to say it because you know it's like I don't want to speak that I'm going to tell you what you need to do. So please understand that you can take that at face value or call me a liar. But well, that's how that is. But two things: one, I've referenced it repeatedly and intentionally they had an ancient anchor, anger towards their brothers. Remember their heritage back in the backstory. They separated at Isaac. I mean, it was Jacob and Esau and it separated. But they were held accountable because when their brothers ran into trouble, rather than being helpful to their brothers, they piled on because they were their brothers. So one... How are we doing with family relationships? How are we doing with our brothers, our sisters, our kids, our parents, our cousins, our aunts and uncles? Do we live in families that are just fractured by an ancient hatred? Obviously, it's not going to go back centuries. But are we nurturing an anger and the hatred within our own families? They're their brothers. Second thing. Are we nurturing an anger towards God? Because he's blessing people that we would prefer didn't get blessed. That it's like, you know what, God? I don't like them. And somehow you seem to. Somehow you seem to bless them. And my point in asking these questions is just simply this. Would God speak to us on something? Is he speaking to us on something? Is he probing us and saying to us, you know what, I've been trying to speak to you for years because I want to give you freedom, I want to give you joy and I want to bless you to be set free from this burden, free from this, this burden where you're defensive in how you deal with everything, where you're angry all the time, when you have speech that is unedifying because you're glad and you celebrate the problems of others. Oh, my friends, I just don't... I don't know, but is it possible God would speak to us about some of these issues? Lord, um, it's just an interesting book in the book of Obadiah because it was so focused upon the Edomites and how they treated their brothers in Jerusalem and the things that you clarified about what was motivating them, Lord, and how they were behaving and all of that. And, Father, we're no different. We're no different. So I pray that for each of us, you help us to understand, have you prodded us today? And rather than running from you, hiding from you, uh, not allowing you to get beyond our defenses, Father, I pray that today we would say it's time to stop. And it's time to allow you to bring healing and wholeness. And we confess these things that you might work anew in us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.